Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. Today we're going to be talking about free will, determinism, and hell. I've been wanting to do this episode for a while, and luckily a listener suggested it, and I finally got myself in gear and uh, churned out this episode. I think you're going to like it. This is a difficult, tough topic, and I've really tried to take it all the way to the mat. Oftentimes, people feel frustrated by partial answers that only lead to to further questions, but it's my hope that we're going to put some nails in some theological coffins today. All right, so without any further ado, let's, uh, let's pick it up with free will. That's really what we're centering most of this around. Now, to dress up a stolen phrase from I forget who, if I can define free will as a white liquid sourced from cows and commonly used as a medium for breakfast cereal consumption, then of course I believe in free will. I have some in my fridge. You see, philosophy is all about making distinctions, clarifying definitions, sorting reality carefully and exactingly. Before we address the question, do we have free will, we must first address what on earth such a thing could be. So coming up with a, a few proposed qualities of, uh, of free will, we, uh, we have some help today. We're going to be talking about uh, Papa Plato, Uncle Aristotle, the Stoics, the Epicureans, uh, St. Augustine, of course, and St. Thomas Aquinas. Towards the end, we're going to take a lot of this thought and combine it into one big composite definition and make a few comments about the subject as a whole. Now, I'm pulling a little bit of this information from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, their article on free will. So it's, it's, it's the same order as them, and I like to check official sources every now and again to make sure that I'm not skidding off the rails. And indeed, I was not, so hooray. If you want to read more about uh, their definitions, I think that's a helpful place to look. It gives you a broad overview about how free will has been viewed uh, in a variety of traditions. All right, Papa Plato. What does he say? Well, to summarize Plato in a very short paragraph, he might say that freedom of the will is that rational ability to bring about justice amongst the parts of one's soul for the good of the whole. Freedom is the result of proper ordering, and it's the cause of this proper ordering in a reciprocal way, a positive feedback loop, if you will. The extent to which our appetites or our passions rule over our reason is to the extent to which we become enslaved and disordered. To the extent that justice rightly orders that which is due in our members, well, then we can be free. And it's with this freedom that the soul is then lifted up to be closer to what is really real and what's truly true. So Plato would say that freedom of the will is a rational ability to bring about this justice, this proper ordering amongst the different parts of one's soul, the appetites, the passions, the intellect. That's what he roots it in. So what about our friend Aristotle? He might say, and this will be a very truncated section because we'll be focusing a lot on Aquinas, who's then pulling from Aristotle. He would say that the Freedom of the will is that power by which we cultivate habits of either virtue or vice. And these habits, kind of like Plato was saying, have this positive or negative feedback cycle. Choosing evil 
in his in his conception, is misordering the hierarchy of goods. Some things are higher, some are lower. So he views it. Now, elsewhere, he's talked about the privation of theory of evil, and these two aren't in conflict. But I would say he stresses this misordering of the hierarchy of goods. The Stoics. They would say that there are necessary conditions for a choice, and there are internal dispositions. To use one of their examples, to push a cylinder on a table is to make it roll. To push a cube is not to make it roll. The push was the cause of the rolling in the first case. It was that necessary condition. But the shape of the object was the necessary condition for that push to then have the effect of rolling. To put that in more Aristotelian terminology, there are potentials that order us towards given ends. This, combined with the actual causes that actualize these potentials, are the explanation for an event. A choice event, for the Stoics, um, would be included in such a thing. Many in the Stoic school were compatibilists, believing in a type of determinism and free will. If one chooses a bad action, it is because they were formed with a bad shape. And therefore, being a bad shape, they are responsible for that action. The evil of the action reflects the evil of their soul. And this kind of sounds like uh, what our our, uh, our listener emailed in as the, uh, the view that she was kind of taking aim at. Um, there's a lot true here, um, but we're going to nuance it pretty heavily and uh, contrast it with some of our other thinkers. The compatibilist idea that there can be determinism and free will is a Catholic idea. There's lots of compatibilists. And there's also what's called libertarian free will theorists, which stress the, uh, the, the freedom of the will in a way which is detached from a uh, strict determined group of causes. We're going to do, I don't even know what camp it is. I'd say we have a type of compatibilism that we'll be pushing, but you'll have to find out exactly what we say by continuing to listen. Next, we have the Epicureans slash modern materialists because, well, there's just nothing new under the sun. So I'm lumping these guys together. They would say that everything is made of atoms. Whatever a soul is, yeah, that's made of atoms too, whatever you want to call it. That these atoms are governed by laws. Now, both modern materialists and the Epicureans said that although there is a general governing by laws, there's what the Epicureans would call a swerve that can happen. There's this, uh, this randomness that can, that can just uh, be built into very fundamental parts of reality, the swerve. Now today we might call this quantum indeterminacy, that, oh, something's acting as a wave function, or we have a, a, a random uh, ejection of an alpha particle from a decaying atom. Now, many in this camp, if they support free will, would like to root free will in this type of material indeterminacy. And they would find something like um, this quantum indeterminacy as proof that free will could exist. Now, we're not huge fans of this particular uh, school of thought, um, we should include them because I think that's what most people think of when they think of free will. They think, ah, I get it. There's a group of causes and then there's a swerve. There's this weird indeterminate thing. There's this injection of randomness into an otherwise ordered whole. That's not what we mean by free will. That will be illuminated 
later. But what does St. Augustine have to say? Well, a lot. Um, as usual, he is the uh, purveyor of uh, much uh, Catholic doctrine that will be uh, attributed to other people. <laughs> um, many in the in the Thomas tradition think that Thomas Aquinas was far more original than he really was, when actually he was normally just quoting Augustine. But, all right, what did he say? Well, he said a lot about the, the evil will, uh, giving a, a psychological analysis to it in the Confessions. In his famous pear tree incident, which I can never read past, nor can I ever finish the Confessions because... Well, because of the pear tree incident, it just drags on. Anyways, in this pear tree incident, he takes something which seems comparatively mild, this stealing of a pear. But Augustine presents this as evidence of him having a truly evil and almost entirely depraved will because he did not steal the pear for the sake of hunger, nor did he steal it for the sake of its delicious taste. But he only stole it to throw it to hogs. He stole it to steal. He rebelled against God through this act because theft seemed good to him. This was sin for sin's own sake. And our tradition states that the will always chooses evil under the aspect of the good. So is this incompatible with what St. Augustine is describing? I would say not at all. Augustine might say, that either the will surges up towards God, progressively loving the higher and higher goods, or it drops back down in weakness and frailty, springing like a stretched rubber band, crashing into itself and caving in at one's origin, the dust from which we were created, the nothingness that God called us out of. Now, there's no true nothingness that doesn't exist by definition. So we, there's no real nothingness that we can come to love. The most that we can do is choose the evil that caves us in on ourselves. We can love ourselves to the contempt of God and all other good things. By stealing the pear, Augustine runs from God. He runs so far that he rejects even the good of the pear, its sweetness, its ability to satisfy his hunger. He's left with one thing, a sick self-assertion. The thought at the beginning and at the end of sin is always pride. Pride militates against love because love is to will the good of the other as other. And pride is to will only the good of oneself as self. So pride claims to raise you higher but it actually snaps you back from stretching towards God and slams you painfully back into the fact of your own original nothingness. It's from this place that it would seem that people do evil for evil's sake. But the fact is, they do it for the sake of themselves. And because they are made from God, by God, they are good in and of themselves. But the goodness they have is not shared and is therefore never multiplied. It's like the meal of that child before he brings what he has to the apostles to be miraculously multiplied and shared amongst the 5,000. It's just barely enough for him to survive. That's how much it is before it's shared. So in the city of God, St. Augustine asks, what was the efficient cause of the evil will? And then he replies, there is none. Augustine sees the choice to do evil 
is a breakdown of a good will, not the assertion of a new power. For Augustine, the will, at its height, chooses God and is, beatitu- is beatified. The will, at its most depraved, lunges at the non-being and nothingness from which it was created. Augustine sets up a thought experiment with two identical men who both see the same hot chick. That's Latin. All things are held constant. One falls to temptation, and the other doesn't. Here, he takes aim at the Stoic position that would deny that a difference in outcome is possible, since the external cause is constant, and the proverbial interior cylinders are of the same shape. Augustine denies that the internal nature gives rise to the evil thoughts because he believes all natures to be good. He writes, then why did he do so? Was it because his will was a nature or because it was made out of nothing? We shall find that the latter is the case. Augustine roots the possibility of sin not in the nature that God gives us as a positive actuality, as if God made souls that were meant to be or otherwise shaped to respond with sin. Instead, he would say that the fact of our being called out of nothing means that without God actively sustaining us in being, wills included, to nothing we would return. Sin is non-being where being ought to be. We are non-being but for the grace of God. Therefore, the cause of right action is the result of God's grace as a positive actuality, and the cause of evil is no cause at all. It's a lack. It's a defect. It's a hole in reality, a dropping back down to to nothingness from beatitude. So if you get nothing out of of Augustine's greatest work, The City of God, but one thing, just remember this, the two cities, the two communities, these two kingdoms that he describes— are created by and bound together in, and directed, well, basically everything by their love. That's what initiates these. The city of God that he describes is the love of God to contempt of self. The city of man is the love of self to the contempt of God. The choice of loves is pivotal to understanding this massive work For Augustine, freedom to choose what or who one loves is a precondition for the community that God desires for us to voluntarily enter. So for him, the purpose of freedom, the purpose of our free will is to allow for love and to therefore be a citizen in the kingdom of God. So what's St. Thomas Aquinas say? Well, let's read straight from the Summa. Here's here's some quotes curated by your favorite podcast host. No, not Trent Horn, me. All right, anyways. Man has free will. Otherwise, counsels, exhortations, commands, prohibitions, rewards, and punishments would be in vain. In order to make this evident, we must observe that some things act without judgment, as a stone moves downward, and in like manner, all things which lack knowledge. And some act with judgment, but not a free judgment, as brute animals. For the sheep, seeing the wolf, judges it as a thing to be shunned from a natural and not a free judgment, because it judges not from reason, but from natural instinct. And the same thing is to be said of any judgment of brute animals. But man acts from judgment, because by his apprehensive power, he judges that thing which should be avoided or sought. But because this judgment, in the case of some particular act, is not from a natural instinct, but from some act of comparison in the reason, therefore he acts from free judgment, and retains the power of being inclined to various things. For reason, 
in contingent matters may follow opposite courses, as we see in dialectic syllogisms and rhetorical arguments. Now, particular operations are contingent, and therefore, in such matters, the judgment of reason may follow opposite courses, and it's not determined to one. And for as much as man is rational, it is necessary that man has a free will. So three categories here are present. You could act like a stone, according to one's nature, and do a prescribed action. Not free, not even willed. Second, you could operate based on pre-programmed desires like an animal. Here, we are willing, but the will is tied to a hardwired set of instincts stemming from the nature as a particular type of critter. And three, his third category, is what Aquinas sees as our ability to make a free choice. It's to use reason to compare alternatives and then to preference one or another. So that's the core of his idea of a free will, the ability for your reason to summon a variety of things and for your will to choose one or the other. It's a deliberative rational process that stems from the fact that you are a rational agent. So reason in contingent matters may follow opposite courses. I think what he might be hinting at here is that that the choice is not required certainly. In other words, if you are given good reasons to make a choice that are compelling but not definitive, this can be enough for your will to move towards an action. There's a gap between the cause of your choice and the choice. This gap is filled by the free will. For example, if you are hungry and you want a blueberry muffin, you are then handed one, you will eat it. No deliberative choice, really. But if a coworker in the office says, I think there are some blueberry muffins in the conference room. You have work to do, but you are hungry. This is where you are not compelled to get the muffin or to stay in your office. Here, you imagine the contingent possibilities and deliberate about your action. What you actually may be chiefly concerned about is more of a meta question about self. Am I the type of person who drops what they're doing and goes muffin hunting? Or should I stick to work? What importance these things really have? That's the question. Your reason is offering possibilities to your will, and your will is weighing these possibilities. This deliberative internal process, Aquinas would characterize as free will. Your choice may, may be based on factors that you set your sights on, not necessarily the, the power of the factors themselves. You can choose to focus on uh, your responsibilities at work and then weigh these more heavily in your own deliberative internal process. Thus, he says, rationality implies free will, since the act of the free will is the offering of alternatives to the will by the intellect. Elsewhere, he simply writes, we call free will that which is the principle of act which man judges freely. So those are his short definitions. But here's another quote. The proper act of free will is choice. For we say that we have a free will because we can take one thing while refusing another, like the muffin. And, okay, he didn't say like the muffin. Anyways, and this is to choose. Therefore, we must consider the nature of free will by considering the nature of choice. Now, two things concur in choice. One on the part of the cognitive power and the other on the appetitive power. On the part of the cognitive power, counsel is required, by which we judge one thing to be preferred to another. And on the part of the appetitive power, it is required that the appetite should accept the judgment of counsel. Therefore, in Aristotle's ethics, 
it leaves in doubt whether choice belongs principally to the appetitive or the cognitive power, since he says that choice is either an appetitive, an appetitive intellect or an intellective appetite. He inclines to its being an intellectual appetite when he describes choice as a desire proceeding from counsel. So there you go. We said that we'd hit more Aristotle here, and Thomas Aquinas is doing it for us. Aquinas, so Aristotle describes it as a desire proceeding from counsel. So that's different from the example of the animal. If you're thinking, well, that's not what I meant by free will, well, be cautioned. <laughs> it's, philosophy is all about making these distinctions. When you hear people affirm free will or deny free will, we have to ask what they mean. So this is giving us a hint about what these different thinkers mean. Because I think in uh, modern parlance, it's more like what we heard from the, the Epicureans and the, uh, and the materialists. And it's this bil- ability to do this entirely unconstrained surge towards one thing or another without any type of bearing of something outside of itself. Where was I? A desire proceeding from counsel. And the reason of this is because the proper object of choice is the means to the end. And this, as such, is the nature of that good which is called useful. Wherefore, since good, as such, is the object of the appetite, it follows that choice is principally an act of the appetitive power, and thus free will is an appetitive power. So it's that which recognizes the good, goes towards it, in light of counsel, right? So some people have read Aquinas as a libertarian, so not politically necessarily, but a libertarian with regards to free will, and others as a compatibilist. In other words, those who see the will as that which determines with ultimate primacy and those who allow for determinism in the story. The choice is based on internal and external factors in this uh, determinist, uh, compatibilist view. Um, Both are allowable in the Catholic tradition, but I think from the quotes above, from what we see, I think that uh, Aquinas would be best characterized as a type of compatibilist. Because this, well, anyways, we we have things to get into. All right, so now we have some thoughts from some various thinkers. We are going into the, uh, the, 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 the meat of this podcast, if you will. Because I know that there are those listening thinking, that wasn't terribly helpful, Jake. You need to give us something better than that. We want to look at the causal chain of, of what makes us choose this versus that. Is that determined? Is that not determined? Is this just due to a set of those internal and external factors? You just... You know, you just push the question down the road like you said you wouldn't. Now we just say, well, does the reason deliberate between these factors for this reason or for that reason? Well, why were those factors there to begin with? Like, come on, right? You're going to hit that stuff, right? Yes, 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 I will. And here we go. But first, we're going to do a, um, well, I'm going to read you something that I was writing up into an article that I was hoping would be an academic article. And, uh, Given my my level of bringing things to completeness, uh, it never will be. So I'll share it with you. All right. This will seem like a digression. I, I, I mostly promise it is not. Instead, I promise, nay, I swear, that with any luck, it will be the silver bullet to take down this puzzling question. So buckle up. All right. In Book 10 of the Metaphysics, Aristotle says the following, quote, One has several meanings. 
the things that are directly and of their own nature and not accidentally called one may be summarized under four heads, though the word is used in even more senses. Remember, the word is one. One, there is the continuous, either in general or especially that which is continuous by nature and not by contact nor by being together. And of these, that has more unity and is prior, whose movement is more indivisible and simpler. Two, that which is whole and has a certain shape and form is one in a still higher degree. And especially if a thing of this sort, by nature and not by force, like the things which are unified by glue and nails or tied together, i.e. if it has in itself the cause of its continuity. A thing of this sort, because its movement is one and indivisible in place and time, so that evidently, if a thing has by nature a principle of movement, that is, of the first kind, like local movement, and the first in that kind, like, say, a circular movement, this is in the primary sense one extended thing. Some things, then, are one in this way. Qua, continuous, oh goodness, I actually made a solemn vow to never use the word qua in philosophy because it just means as, and it's a, uh, it's just a pretentious way to say as. You hear philosophers do that all the time, being, qua, being. Um, more than once in conversation when somebody said qua, I raised my hands like a duck and I start shouting qua, qua, qua. Um, it's quite effective, quite ridiculous. Anyways, I, I apologize for using qua are one in this way as continuous or whole, and the other things that are one as those whose definition is one. Of this sort are the things the thought of which is one, who, those the thought of which is indivisible, and it is indivisible if the thing is indivisible in kind or in number. All right, that's really the definition I want you guys to, to keep in your, in your noggins. But let's read his third also. This is the third way of being one. In number, then, the individual is individual, is indivisible. And number four, in kind, that which is intelligibility, and in knowledge is indivisible. So that that which causes substances to be one must be one in the primary sense. Okay, remember number four also. So in Aristotle's understanding, one has all of these meanings. The, the naturally continuous and the whole, the individual and the universal are all included and can be characterized as one. And some are one in regards to their movement, either local or um, simple. Was that the other one? Yes, local or simple. Um, and in other ways, something which has a thought or a definition can be one because it's individ individual. It's indivisible. It's, uh, it can't be broken down further. So his concept of oneness is richer than just a simple numerical oneness. And this is something I think a lot of philosophers need to take note of. Um, I like to poke at Thomists every once in a while. I mean, God bless them. But a lot of them talk about how one is a transcendental. And that's true. But in my previous episode and in my article on the fourth way of Thomas Aquinas, I offer one, the number one, as an example of something which is not a transcendental, I group it with uh, saltiness and redness. And I do this to point out that there's more than one type of oneness. There's a uh, type of oneness which is a metaphysical oneness, which is reducible to the divine simplicity. 
And then there's also a numerical oneness. And I think that's a point that needs to be pushed, and that's my cheeky little reason for including one in a place which most uh, Thomists would, uh, would gasp if they saw it. Anyway, so his concept of one is much richer than this type of numerical oneness and extends to a type of oneness in form or nature. Now, Aquinas references Aristotle's thought in the Summa, question 5, article 5. Hence, it is said that the measure marks the mode, but the form itself is signified by the species, for everything is placed in its species by its form. Hence, the number is said to give the species, for definitions signifying species are like numbers, according to the philosopher, Metaphysics, Book 10. For as a unit added to or taken from a number changes its species, so a difference added to or taken from a definition changes its species. So he uses the word definition here. You can also look at um, uh, uh, form. I'm, I'm pretty sure that definition comes from Greek and it's rendered into the Latin through the, the, the word form. So where we think about Plato's forms, believe that the better rendering would be definition. Um, so that's what he's talking about here, that if you take a form, something which is a nature of something, and you subtract an essential quality out of it, well, then it's no longer one with that type of uh, type 2 slash 4 um, Aristotelian oneness that relates to a one thing, a one definition, a uh, one form. So he makes this comparison with forms and numbers, such that every form is kind of like a number, right? You add or subtract, and that changes it to the next number or the next form. So by taking these quotes together, we can see that there can be a type of oneness that's that different beings can possess. If this type of oneness permits of subtraction of difference from the species that signifies the form. If, however, the analogy of definition to number is maintained, and a subtraction is made to a species that represents one, then the thing would be reduced to zero. Furthermore, if the analogy of number to species is taken in too strict a way, all species would be identical because it would all be the same numerical unity, i.e. the number one. But this type of reading is, of course, ridiculous. So instead, here's what I offer. We could offer prime number as a type of oneness, and this analogy is very well maintained. So it maintains the difference between species and allows for the type of subtraction that Aquinas references. When something is subtracted, this immediately breaks the unity that it was previously instantiated. So the reason that I offer prime numbers here is because they have a type of, uh, of oneness that another does not. Because other numbers, you could say, um, have parts. So that would be more like an, an artifact, like a car. It has many parts, and they're each just doing their thing. But a, a, uh, a prime number is something that's not broken up into that type of multiplicity. It has a unity, not a unity by sharing in the nature of the number one. And that's never demanded, not by Aquinas, not by August, and not by um, Aristotle. But instead, it has a, a oneness according to its form. All right. So I hope that wasn't terribly confusing. Basically, to reiterate, Aquinas and Aristotle see the, the oneness or unity in more than one way. Various different things can be unified, but that doesn't mean that they share in the number one to get their unity. They could be uni unified in kind, for example, or in thought as a, sim as a th single thing. So Aquinas compares this type of unity as sharing in a common definition. 
He follows Aristotle in comparing the definition of the essential definitive thing about a thing to a number. If something is pulled from a definition, it turns into a new definition. If something is pulled from a number, it becomes a new number. So here's the twist, because I really drove this home like crazy. I was, quote, reading from that article, but really just editorializing as I saw the words. <laughs> so here's the twist. Here's the twist. Definitions are themselves built from other definitions. I can give the definition of a man as rational animal, right? The classic definition. But that presupposes the definitions of rationality and animality. Water can be given the title H2O, but this presumes hydrogen and oxygen. So we can't have a definitional infinite regress. So we have to terminate in a set of basic definitions. And I propose that this number analogy is quite well suited to the task. These basic definitions, basic forms, whatever you want to call them, would be like the factors of a number, these prime numbers that then make up the rest. So maybe the number six is like water. So hydrogen and oxygen could be like two and three. And in this case, the higher the number, the higher level actuality, right, in our analogy. So this analogy makes sense of something very puzzling. Traditional Aristotelian thought, um, well, amongst many other people, say that the effect cannot be greater than its cause. It says that, that in some way we have to have the effect exist first in the cause. And that, that really creates a few puzzles. Um, they claim that there must be a proportionality between the cause and effect. And that actuality does not come from nothing. Therefore, an effect cannot have more actuality than the cause. Further, we're told that the effect exists preeminently in the cause, which I think I just said. Anyways, finally, on a related point, we're told that the parts of a thing exist virtually in the whole thing. But, um, so each of these true but puzzly, puzzling claims are easy to make sense of with our number analogy which I promise has a purpose in this podcast. Anyways, in the first case, two and three as an interrelated set is just what it means to be six. Yet the intuitive notion that the two in a cumulative way are not the same is maintained. A number can never surpass its, its factors. Yet the higher level actuality, is that true? Anyways, yet the higher level actuality represented by the higher number can in fact come to pass. So the increase of one over the sum of the factors of uh, two and three, making uh, five, it, th that extra one that comes to six when these two interrelate through multiplication doesn't come from nowhere. We can retain that thing that was said earlier, that the cause always has to exist in proportion to the effect. This is a proportion because the two are interrelated, but it's not just coming from the, the pure additive nature of the two. It's not that what it means to be hydrogen plus what it means to be oxygen is what it means to be water. No, we have to include this multiplication, this interrelation, which is over and above a simple addition. All right, where was I? Um, second point is the effect, or that number six, does exist preeminently in the set of factors, though not in a recognizable way. It's, it's kind of like a cake exists in its ingredients, but not in a recognizable way. So we can retain this other Thomistic notion that the effect exists preeminently in its cause. It does, right? Six exists in the set of factors. That's true. 
And finally, the factors of a number do exist inside of the number, but in a virtual way. And they can be pulled out, just like water, we can pull out hydrogen and oxygen. Further, parts in this case have a relation of generation, which we're told parts have. One that is not in conflict with its existence in a state of potential. Now, this latter point can cause trouble in Aristotelian metaphysics, where it seems to be a contradiction to say that the whole is dependent on its parts, yet uh, potential things can't actualize anything. And the parts, according to Thomistic metaphysics, only exist, exist potentially. But with this analogy in this mathematical relation, where the factors of the numbers are its parts and exist virtually, we have a clear idea of the internal consistency of this view. So I think it helps to shed some light there. So with our prime number and uh, relation multiplication analogy in place, what would a human will be like? Well, I would suggest that it would be a very high number. After all, it has a significant level of actuality. I would say that it's not prime necessarily since the will comes about through these types of interrelations. It's analogous to multiplication. As the Stoics told us, the choice is the interrelation of the external and the internal world. As Plato told us, it involves the interrelation of our constituent parts in a proper order. As Aristotle told us, the will is formed through habit, whereby it would be interrelated with our past choices. Augustine would add that it's related to the objects of our love and the grace that's received from God. And Aquinas would tell us that the free choice is related to the intellect, whereby the rational intellect offers the wills objects that they might choose. Now the question, is the will determined? Well, on one level, no, because the choice is not internal plus external plus parts of self plus habits plus love plus grace plus reason. It does, in fact, exceed the mere sum of the factors bringing it about. It has a positive actuality past what the parts would add to. So in this respect, the libertarians are correct when they claim that there is something past these factors, a new actuality of choice. Aquinas uses uh, the terms calling the will an actuality, and it is. And like other actualities, it rises out of the dense interrelation of natures, the natures of its constituent factors. But this new actuality is not coming from nowhere, right? It comes from the interrelation of the factors, like in multiplication. Um, note, what makes these to be a set, what makes these factors to be a set, the cause of the factors having a whole is the whole. The cause of the factor's setness is the number. The cause of the parts of our body being unified is the soul. Likewise, the cause of the factors of our choices is our free will. Not that our wills bring about the exterior or interior causes, but rather the principle of unity, the whole. The whole is the principle of unity is what brings them to bear on the set of interior factors in this in this free will, right? So there is an ontological primacy, a firstness in being to the parts of the whole. Yet in regards to unity or oneness, and as we have seen, the arrival of the higher actuality of power allowing for the unique action of the will, the whole is primary. 
To put that back in math terms, 2 and 3 have a primacy in regards to the generation of the number 6. But 6, as such, has a primacy in that it defines the grouping of the factors as 2 and 3, being the cause of their unity. These could have been and are the factors of other numbers when grouped with other numbers like 2, 3, and 5 when unified by the number 30. So there must be something which causes 2 and 3 or any other grouping of factors to be just that, a grouping of factors. And that thing which binds these things together is the whole. It would be that number um, which, is then, which is generated by these things. So here we go. We have this ontological primacy whereby we have the parts um, bring about the whole, and yet we have this primacy of unity whereby the whole is the cause of the unity amongst its parts. All right, so you might be thinking that, well, six is just determined by two and three. Nope, only when brought into composition. And minds do this. This fits with Aquinas on the role of the mind vis-a-vis -vis the will, right? He said that it groups different factors and brings them to the will. We believe, and you can look at uh, Thomas Aquinas's second way, for example, that things need a cause for their composition. Anything composed by nature must be caused. I think Pat Flynn has uh, some stuff on this if you want to, I don't know, bother him about that. But in any case, um, without going into a huge defense of that, the only thing that could stop a regress of composition is something which is itself not composed. And traditionally, we see the, the um, rational intellect as something which is simple. Not simple with respect to act existence, like God is. He's ultimately simple. But simple in a more limited way. One, or unified in a way that's other than the oneness or total unity of God. So something like a mind can stop this type of, of regress. Minds can indeed bring things into composition, like ideas or sets of reasons or sets of dispositions. It can bring things into composition without itself being composed. We have a mind. And remember, Aquinas sees our having a rational intellect as implying that we have a will. We have something which can group these different factors that together as just kind of bleeding out into the fact that we have something that weighs these, that, that determines these. It's kind of like saying if we have a cause of two and three being grouped together in an interrelated set, it just is what it means to be six. All right, so for my compatibilist friends, you can maintain that choice flows from us and that we are determined by what creates us. What you can't do is to deny the actuality that truly exists over and above our parts or deny the multiplication of the factors, if you will. Making that move is to embrace reductionism. Determinism is not off the table. The factors which bring about the number, that's a real feature of reality, just like two and three bring about six. Yet, one must have a metaphysics in place that explains the ability for one set versus another set to be brought into a whole without creating an infinite regress problem. And this classic one-in-the-many problem, in this case, I think it's solved by the rational intellect, which brings these things into composition. All righty, next section. We're going to take a break. Then we're going to talk about extending this analogy to sin. What would sin look like in this? Well, 
You'll find out in like one moment or so. Okay, so what would sin be in this analogy? Well, we know that sin is non-being where being ought to be. That's the standard privation theory of evil after all. So what would it mean for us to have a privation, for us to have a lack of actuality where it ought to be, for us to have something parasitic on the good in this analogy? Well, here's what I would suggest. We couldn't really have a zero or a total non-being because there's no positive actuality there. It would instead be like fractions or decibels. It'd be a whole number, yeah, but it'd be broken. It'd be reduced in its perfection. So now, what happens when these new evil factors come into being? Well, I would suggest they limit the perfection and they draw down the actuality. They reduce the nobility. So if the higher numbers represent a higher order being, something which has a more positive actuality, something which is more noble, as Aquinas would say, when it comes to be interrelated with these evil factors, which are broken up, which are fractions, well, it reduces it, it draws it down. Just like if we took the number six that we had earlier, and we decided that we would we would combine it, we would group it into a, the group of factors with 0.5. Well, now it's reduced down. It's reduced down to three. It's, it's limited in its perfection. Now, it's easy to see how the effects of this damage would spread almost instantaneously. After all, here in the universe, there are near infinite ways that beings like us are interrelated, dependent, uh, contingent on one another. So as soon as just a little bit of this fractional being is multiplied or interrelated to one thing, well, it could be interrelated to the next, and sin can just sweep the universe. So one of the early things that you'll pick up if you read the, the good Old Testament is that there are things which are clean and things which are unclean, things that increase and things that decrease your perfection, if you will. In the New Testament, we receive the sign of the New Covenant, or Testament in Latin. Yes, the second half of your Bible is a reference to the Eucharist, the New Testament in his blood. And here you are joined with, interrelated to, uh, multiplied by, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what happens then is that you, to the extent that you open yourself up to receive him, are raised in perfection, nobility, actuality, strengthened and fortified by supernatural grace and share in the divine life himself. And I think it could be this reason that Christ makes all things clean. When he touches the leper, the non-being where being ought to be is drowned by his infinite goodness expressed in his incarnate mercy. Any fraction multiplied by infinity is raised to infinity. It doesn't harm or fracture the infinite. Being joined to God through Christ means that we destroy th sin through entering into the dark places of humanity. Jesus ate with tax collectors and prostitutes because his light could not be extinguished by darkness, but instead is made brighter in the darkest places. The old law had no light of its own, no power against sin. It could only keep us from sin to save us from being destroyed by it. So in this analogy here, we would say that God is like the infinite. He's from where all factors come. He's from where all actuality, all perfection, all nobility, all goodness comes. And that we are like those little finite numbers. As we interrelate with things which are fractional, broken, have non-being or being ought to be, it reduces us in our perfection. 
and that if we multiply by nothing at all, we are fine to be very low and drop down into a very low order perfection, a very low order being. Kind of like uh, what we talked about earlier with St. Augustine, that when we don't interrelate to God and the good things of the world, instead we cave in on oneself. We're never multiplied out, expanded in our actuality. All right, so there we go. There's our analogy. I think it is helpful. So we have learned, just as a way of reminder, that if the claim is that we are determined because one factor, say internal things plus external things plus whatever you want to fill in the blank with, just adds up to the result of our choice, I think that's metaphysically false. Instead, we should say that this set of factors does bring about a given choice that's true, but not in a strictly arithmetic way, in a multiplicative way instead. And the, the, well, we'll go there. All right, so this higher level actuality that comes about is not simply a result of the existence of these previous things, since they don't have the form to contribute. They don't. Hydrogen and oxygen have hydrogen and oxygen as forms. They don't have water as a form to contribute. So you deny that it's just parts which totally bring about a whole. Instead, there needs to be an exemplar formal causality pre-existing in God, who's the maximum of, well, all things of existence itself, such that there can be existing things like water. Because that form must come from something. It ultimately comes from God. God allows these, uh, these factors to generate things, to be ontologically prior. But it's because God created this, this form itself to be the whole, to be the cause of the unity of the parts, that these are interrelated and not something else. All right. So our free will comes from this increased actuality over and above simply the addition of our parts. I think that does a lot to help a more libertarian-leaning view of free will. Okay, so now we're going to talk about a bunch of questions here. One, do we have free will in heaven? Well, yes, our rational intellects are fully fortified with the help of supernatural grace by virtue of our union with God. Therefore, it it, uh, our rational intellect is presenting the good to the will truthfully, recognizing how in the myriad of ways God, the maximum of perfection, perfects and raises all things in nobility, even from the nothingness from which they originate. The will, strengthened by the grace of union with God and habituated towards choosing the good, recognizes God, the maximum of the genus of good, and thereby the cause of all goodness, as that goodness that has always been chased in diluted forms on earth when we just saw through our, our glasses though darkly. So do we have free will in heaven? Of course, and our free will is doing better than ever because it's, it's uh, fortified by supernatural grace because we come to see goodness himself, not in a diluted form, not in a confused form. We see the truth of all things, not in a diluted form, not in a, a, not uh, multiplied out through a variety of, of distinct things, but instead unified just in the divine essence that through the beatific vision we get to see. So free will in heaven? Yes, of course. So can God determinately will that a free creature wills something freely? Well, yes, and I would say that um, this would be the compatibilist uh, position, that there can be actual um, determinacy and that we can have free will of free creatures. I don't see these in conflict. So recall that in the created order, we have no power 
Uh, there's no power over the will um, that comes in that kind of arithmetic fashion, right? So there's the active power of free choice that arises out of a heightened actuality exceeding the mere sum of its members. In the same way that hydrogen and oxygen can be the cause of water, but not the cause of wetness because they are themselves not wet. Our nature and nurture could bring about a choosing apparatus called free will, and yet not be the cause of the choice, because freedom of choice, like wetness of water, is proper to the whole and not the parts. So we offered the numerical analogy pulled from Thomas's reflection on Aristotle's Metaphysics Book 10, and here we suggested that the parts are like those factors and numbers. The number is like the substance, the will like six, and the things that bring it about are like two and three. So while the nature does not contain six until the creation of the first will, this is not true with God. God includes all actuality in a similar way that infinity includes all numbers. So we have a pre-existing will, um, and that's of God. So is there a, uh, a, a, a cause in the universe of our, um, of our will choosing one thing or, or the next in a determinate way? No, I don't think not in the not in the universe. No, is there a cause ultimately rooted in the will of God? Um, yes, that's the cause of our free will because God willed it to be. All righty. Um, so, in the fourth way of Thomas Aquinas, the best way, as my listeners know, of course, we see that God is the cause of nobility. And we've been referencing that in a variety of ways. So, nobility is related to the level of actuality of a subject. God is therefore the cause of a will reaching a higher level of actuality than its parts. It's God that makes that to be over and above. Not only is God supplying all actuality, um, making choice and all other powers possible, but it's he who arranged the order of the universe to cause the interrelation of all things that he lent existence to and granted natures to. To summarize that summary, God determines all things through creating natures or forms, lending existence to things and ordering the universe. Therefore, God can create free creatures who meet with the earlier criteria of freedom and choose something with an absolute determinacy from God's perspective. So, does God therefore cause or determine our evil choices? Well, Augustine has already told us no. But God is the cause of these finite wills. Because they are finite, they by definition are lacking in perfection. Lacking in perfection with regards to the, their ability to choose means that by definition they can fail. This does not make our wills evil, but it does make our wills fallible. Just the fact that we're not God. We are not the infinite uh, goodness himself. So could God have used his infinite power to make a person with an infinitely perfect will and intellect that can omnisciently grasp the goodness of God and present it to that infinitely perfect will? No, he can't create that. Because that type of action would not be creation at all, but it'd be better described as begetting. So when God the Father does that, in essence, whereby he witnesses himself, the good himself, with his omniscience, uh, 
He, um, he makes a perfect image of himself with his omnipotent intellect. When he does those types of things, well then at that point, it's not a creation of another being at all. It's a begetting of the second person of the Trinity who does have will, who does have intellect and points that always back towards his father, just like his father uh, first or primarily rather pointed it towards him. So if we're asking why didn't God do all that he possibly could with his infinity to bring about a, 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 a will, an intellect, which was as perfect as he was, well, he did. And it's called Jesus. So he did that too. <laughs> the question should be, well, would it be worth it for him to bring about a finite will of some type of creature? Well, I'd say yes. My favorite answer to why did God create man is simply because he thought we might like it. All right, so uh, why can't we be um, somehow attached to or part of that, um, that infinite act of willing the infinite good for another that God the Father does through all eternity? Well, well we can be, like, welcome to Christianity. The whole point is that evil um, had its place in bringing about greater goods, um, but in the end, the finite is drawn into the infinite, the fallible into the infallible. Our wills mirror and match God. That's the intent. Just like Christ's human's will did. His human will was fully fortified by and infused with supernatural life. And that gives us a glimpse of what our beatitude would entail. That's what we're praying for when we say in the words of our Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So God can supernaturally fortify a will to whatever extent he pleases, yet he has good reasons to not do this to a maximum degree for all creatures. This leads us to, well, why does evil exist? And in short, because the existence of evil brings about greater goods. That's the classic answer. And note that the point of the universe is not to generate good like a machine, but rather to reveal God. It's like a prism that breaks the pure white light of God into many colors. Allowing evil lets us see God in more facets and more colors. We know his heart because we see him as Savior. We know his mercy because we know ourselves as sinners. The cross was the revelation of God's self-emptying love for us. The incarnation that was brought about due to sin showed us that the totalitarolitaire, the total other, this, this infinitely distant God, wanted to become one of us, a little lower than the angels. He wanted to be born into a real human family. In the end, God brings about all the goods from a reality that includes evil. And through Christ's redemption, also brings about all the goods from a world that's free of sin. And I'll add the ne neglected part is that in this remade, redeemed world, we also get the goods of a past that included sin and redemption. To illustrate that, think of the difference between uh, growing up poor and becoming rich and being always rich. I would suggest it's better to grow up poor and become rich. And that's what God has done for us. He's allowed us to grow poor in sin so that we can become rich in Christ. Okay, so to attempt to answer whatever that question was once more, no, God does not create the evil of the will. 
Evil has no positive existence, no positive actuality. It's simply a misordering caused by that uh, freely ordering of a free will. So evil is a foreseen consequence of creating creatures from nothing and yet with the ability to love. So what's the point of free will? Well, just what I just said. It's the precondition for love. To love is to will the good of the other as other. It is an act of the will by where, whereby the will turns from itself, turns from uh, Augustine's caving in on oneself, and instead moves towards others. That's the point of us having a free will, to set the preconditions for love. All right, next question. How can we be free if God or anything else knows the future? This one's a common one. And I think this question gets too much attention. In short, there is no causal arrow from the knowledge of a mind to the will of another. To put it another way, one's temporal relation to other minds is in no way affecting the ontological status of their free will. Here's a thought experiment. You know what you did yesterday, but did that determine your choice? Well, no. A future knower of an action doesn't change the nature of the choosing agent. So why then would a past knower of a given action change the nature of the choosing agent? I think there's a false incompatibility between foreknowledge and freedom, because foreknowledge has no causal effect on the freedom of that creature. We believe that powers come from being a substance. If you are a substance that has free will, stemming from your nature, then you would need to be blunted from using that freedom by some real cause. But yet, the existence of knowledge in some other person's intellect, well, that's not a cause that can blunt your effective free will. That knowledge comes from the fact of you. That knowledge is not moving towards you to change you. Now, in the case of God, God does know things into existence. But the tricky part here is one of the things that he knows into your existence is your free will. All right. What is the unforgivable sin? This one comes up all the time. Not all these were questions from the listeners at all, but there are ones which have come up in many other times and places. So here's my short explanation. I think I did a whole episode on this at one point. The unforgivable sin is the flipping of the categories of good and evil so that right intention and right action can never align. So, in the case of the Gospels, we have people attributing to Satan the works of God and God the works of Satan. That means that if they try to do good, well, their right intention can never be aligned with a right action because they've taken actions which are good and called them evil and evil and called good. So, we're always going to have a mismatch. In order to have to do the good, right, in a meritorious way, you would have to intend to do the good and then do the good. But that's impossible when you flip those categories. So Aristotle stresses the importance of habit with respect to the will. And if the will chooses evil by habit, such that the normal operation of the will is twisted from its intended aim and surges towards that which is not good, it lusts after what is evil, then that will is dragging itself into hell. So how can the choices, now we're getting into a hell portion, how can um, the finite choices of an admittedly fallible will merit eternal conscious punishment in an everlasting hell? Well, first, although we are fallible, the whole point of our faith 
is that we can be joined with he who is infinite, infallible. And we can receive the, uh, the influx of supernatural grace to avoid choosing evil. The first way that we always sin is by disconnecting from God and thereby becoming vulnerable to repeated and persistent failure. Yes, we're fallible, but we're meant to be connected to a God who is not. So that's my first point, that it's not quite so simple. We have the opportunity to not sin. Second, um, I would recommend listening to the dedicated hell episode. Um, And there I make a number of points, and I'll talk about like two of them here. One is, an offense against an infinite God is infinite in severity. That's a serious thing. The higher the order of dignity that, that, that one assaults, the greater the sin. Also, uh, God calls creation very good. This one's a little bit more speculative. Um, I believe that the goodness of earth restrains our soul from reaching the depth of evil possible when broken from our bodies at death. So it could be true that people you know don't seem that evil right now. At death, if our habits have been formed to run from the light of God, then we'll do so in an unencumbered way at death, and we'll end up farther from God than ever possible in this life. Um, I explained that a little bit more in that episode, but but uh, yes, we live in a wonderful world. We Scripture tells us that the uh, the heavens and the earth announce uh, God's glory. That's the place that God set us in. Now, as soon as we're, we're loosed from this place that's announcing God's glory and we have the opportunity to either go towards heaven or go towards hell, it's these habits which are formed on earth that will, uh, that will set our destination. So, yeah, I think people in hell are much more evil than anything that you could find on earth. All right. Next point is when we're thinking about hell, Uh, thinking about anything for that matter, we always need to clarify what is unclear by what is clear. So let me give you three things that are clear. One, lots of people go to hell. Scripture flat out says, the road is broad that leads to destruction. That's true. Second, God is absolutely just and boundlessly merciful. That's a fact. Three, For the vast majority of us, we have strong moral intuitions that eternal torment of the vast majority of people would be contrary to know to what we know of God. Those three things I think are all clear. Let me tell you the wrong way to deal with those things. To throw one out. That's the wrong way. If you threw one of those out, you screwed it up. We need to find a way to harmonize these facts. Because some people like to throw out that first one. Maybe we can accept that God's just and merciful and that we have this intuition that most people, you know, shouldn't be eternally tormented. Let's just get rid of that idea that people go to hell. Wow. Tension's gone. That was tough. Cognitive dissonance. Bummer. We can just throw away a premise. No, you can't. All right. Next one is some people say, well, maybe God's not that just and boundlessly merciful. Maybe God's kind of like like mean and just vengeful. And oh my goodness, I don't even want to be part of the church. Wait, wait, wait. Um, No, don't get rid of that one. It's true. He is absolutely just. He is absolutely merciful. The other things are true. And that one is too. I don't know if people throw away that last one, the idea that people have strong moral intuitions that eternal torment of the vast majority of people would be contrary to what we know of God. Um, Maybe there are people who say, no, everybody, everybody likes the idea of hell. Come on. 
Um, if you find those people, um, that, that, that would be, that would be interesting. Anyways, we're going to harmonize all these. I think there's ways to harmonize each one of these true statements. There's a reason God gave us this moral intuition. Uh, there's a reason why he says he's merciful. And there's a reason why he says so many people are going to hell. Um, let's see. The first thing is, yes, a punishment can be eternal, but why would you think it would be equal? Who said it was equal? Nobody said it was equal. The tradition of the Catholic Church certainly doesn't say that the punishments in hell are equal. Um, look at uh, Dante's Inferno. Of course, that's not like a definitive document about what hell's like, but it's certainly not condemned by the tradition. I think it reveals a variety of true things about, about God and us and our relation and hell, <laughs> right? And if you got nothing out of that one, it's that there are levels of hell that there are varying punishments, that the punishments fit the crime in different ways. Some people are punished severely and some aren't. Um, to reinforce this, I would say that traditionally we say that purgatory is at the very top reaches of hell. Um, and that uh, babies are hypothesized to have either been baptized by God at their death if they die um, and find their way into heaven, or another common one of the tradition is that they're in hell but a place in hell where although they're not connected with the supernatural uh, connection with God, they do enjoy a state of eternal and natural happiness like the Garden of Eden. But that place has been viewed as in hell. So we have a wide variety of what the tradition might suggest could be in hell. Now, is hell going to be great? Is that where you want to go? But I will say that you need to kind of open up a little bit and say maybe it's not the same for everybody because nobody ever said it was the same for everybody. Maybe it fits the crime like our intuition said. And maybe the crime is more severe than we think. We need to be open to that because it is. Um, but yeah, I don't think we need to jump to an assumption about what hell's going to be and then backtrack to kick out true things that Christ reveals. All right. Um all right, so it, a word of caution. If you heard that and you think, well, I'm going to start telling people that uh, that some people in hell just are punished by, by eating the same ice cream flavor for eternity, and uh, really the only punishment is that it's butter pecan. Uh, no, you can't assume that you know what hell is like. We can just assume that sin is horrifying, God is good, and hell is just. Full stop. But you don't need to jettison something because there are other ways that it could be going on down there. All right, the next point, I think it really changes the game when we're talking about hell and we say that people freely choose it, right? This is an episode about free will and hell and determinism. I think that people choose hell. Now, this view is often scoffed at. It feels like we go, oh, no, 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 it's not God, it's not God, no, 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 it's just people choose hell, as if we're just trying to back up with our hands up. That's not the case. Um, I think we have, we have good reason why people might choose hell. Uh, first, as Aristotle tells us, we cultivate habits. And if you have a habit of choosing pride over God, you're, do you really think that when you're offered heaven, which is a place where you must enter humbly, where you bow down before God, do you really think that after cultivating the habits of self over God, pride over humility, when presented with heaven, you'll just surge right into the beatific vision? No, your desires have been molded. 
you're going to see that light of God as blinding, as searing, as unbearable. You've learned to hate even the diluted forms of goodness. So when you see undiluted good in God himself, you're going to turn towards evil. We have, we have Augustine who, who is even, he was even rejecting the goodness of the sweetness of the gosh darn pear. So if he even opposed that limited goodness, how much more is he in opposition to God? So you will have habitual, if you were evil, don't be evil guys. If you have habituated your intellective powers to prefer lies to truth, when you see God, the Logos, see the truth himself, your mind will scramble behind the walls of your lies that you have fenced yourself in, in this life, and it won't come out. All right. Um, I would say that not only does that light drive you away from heaven because of the dispositions you have cultivated in yourself, but I think that hell will draw you in. Not you, listener. Whoever's evil. Don't go to hell, guys. Um, anyways. Moving on to some speculative theology. Here's how I think that hell could draw you in. Here's what I think hell could offer you. Something, well, you could call it positive. is a way of enticing people in such that they choose hell actively. Not just repelled by heaven, though I think they will be. I suspect, again, speculative theology here, but I have my support. That in hell, we will have the opportunity to punish each other. I think there will be other punishments too, but I think that Satan at our death will say, you know, here in hell, you get the opportunity to get what's owed. People owe you a debt. People hurt you. You get to hurt them back. Isn't that cool? And look at this life. Have you ever met a couple that had an awful marriage? They're plenty of times that it's really only one of their fault and the other person is a victim. I'm not talking about those couples. I'm talking about the ones that you've met that seem to really deserve each other. They're in this cycle of just getting back at each other, of just punishing one another, of always calling to mind the other person's sin and seeking vengeance. And when they do that, they open up for themselves a little hell because the draw to exact vengeance to them it's just irresistible. It's just better than peace. But marriages that are sacramental, that point towards heavens, are ones which debts are canceled, where no vengeance is taken on the other, where sins are forgotten. It's not that repentance is forgotten for sin. It's quite the opposite. That remains, and that's what causes the humility that brings about peace, love, union, harmony. So the first point is that people at their worst do in fact reciprocally seek to extract debts because of slights and wrongs uh, that they have experienced, and by so doing, open up a little hell on earth. I mean, at a societal level, that's what the Marxist hordes do. They call us to, and I quote, um, be armed with the record of the offenses of your past. You can always go back to listen to the Marxist history episode for more on that. So, Marxism, for example, sets class against class, or today's more common, to set race against race, gender against gender, to call to mind all the offenses of the past, to prompt some type of reciprocal repentance and humility? Oh no, but instead to set the world on fire with a vengeance, to get what's owed, to extract from others, to punish those who have hurt you, to open up hell in society. It's something we oppose. So I suspect that's how it works on earth. Could be the way it works in hell. 
Second point is I think we have biblical warrant that hell will draw us in in this way, that it will offer us the ability to get back what we owed. One is, do you remember the story of the servant who is forgiven by his master of an eternal debt? And on his way home, he sees somebody who owed him money and he jumps on him and chokes him and says, give me back what I'm owed. Now, when the master finds out that he did this, well, he puts his debt back on. He, I think he throws him in prison, right? This guy goes to hell for that. So what's that tell us? It tells us that there's two choices. One, we can follow the road of extracting what is, yeah, truly, legitimately owed to us from others. But if we do that, the eternal debt of our sin against God comes back in force, which means we go to hell. It's option one extract, choke others, give me back what's owed, and go to hell. Or cancel those debts in mercy, like our, like our master did for us, and go to heaven. Next, in the Beatitudes, in Matthew chapter 5, says that blessed are the poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, I would suggest that if you had, let's say, a thousand, one thousand dollar loans, so if a thousand people owed you a thousand dollars, you're actually pretty rich. That's how banks get rich, right? They have many loans which are owed to them. So you're a millionaire. A thousand people owe you a thousand dollars. So this type of moral debt doesn't represent a material payment, right? It represents a spiritual debt, right? That's what we get, that's what we get forgiven by God, spiritual debts. So to be poor in spirit, I suggest, is to cancel everybody else's debt that, uh, that you hold, which means you lose your net worth. If you cancel all 1,000 people's $1,000 debts, you've lost a million dollars. You're poor. And if you still have things you owe others, now you're underwater. That's what we're called to do to enter the kingdom of heaven, that place of peace where people reciprocally forgive one another and where God in turn forgives us. And thus, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Likewise, to operate in the heavenly way versus the hellish way means that we'll be persecuted for not getting our own, because we, we never get to do our own vengeance. Everybody only does vengeance on us because it's one way. We've given up our claim to uh, to uh, to choke out that, that other servant. So when people only try to extract from us and we can't do it likewise, well, then we're persecuted because of our righteousness. And what does the Beatitude say? Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's the same blessing. Now, in the recent uh, recent reading of the gospel from Luke chapter something, around chapter 12, I think, we have the example of the servant who is writing down debts in order to save himself, right? So I'll offer that as another biblical picture of uh, these writing down of debts. And finally, in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It's a precondition for salvation. But I think that we can read that in the reverse way, that, that if God, if we are, uh, that we could keep all of our debtors. And I think that's what hell is. So I think that's what the devil tries to lure us into on this earth. That's how we open up hell on earth instead of, uh, instead of 
God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We try to do the opposite when we cave to sin, when we fall in on ourselves, when we're, we're seduced by pride. We try to make hell on earth as it is in hell, <laughs> right? So um, there you go. That's a way that we can be drawn into hell. And I think that's a game changer. That means that we're using the intellect that we've habituated to lies, and we're presenting ourselves false things. We're presenting ourselves really just our own image and choosing ourselves again and again. And when we do that, we choke out our fellow servants. We run from God. We flee from goodness. We put ourselves in a hell, which is not arbitrary, but is just. All right. So to wrap up, I think we've answered it all. We're going to make that composite definition of free will so that nobody is confusing it for anything in their fridge, drawing from all of our friends from earlier, and including some of the explanations from our long-winded discussion um, and remarks from before. All right, so here's what I propose. Our will is given the nature and dignity of being a choosing apparatus by God who wishes us to have a power to will so that we can have a power to love. We must be free so that we can freely love. It works together with our intellect as the intellect presents to the will the things for its judgment. Plato would remind us that justice ordered this internal life, uh, ordering of this internal life, um, is such as um, of each power of our soul. Uh, oh my goodness. If only I could read, dear listeners. Um, so Plato would say that it's an internal justice, a, um, a receiving and rendering to, to uh, what is due to our internal members that brings this pro- that is this proper order. Aristotle adds that we order the hierarchy of goods and that we are habituating ourselves to certain virtues or vices. The Stoics add that although external factors can push us towards a choice, it's our internal disposition that is what allows us to resist or cooperate with that push. The Gospels support this, saying that it's not what goes into the body that makes us clean. Augustine cautions us against caving in on oneself and reminds us that the kingdom of God is entered through selfless love, even to the contempt of self. We will use our wills to stretch higher towards the pure love of God. And until we rest in him, Augustine would say our hearts will be restless. He adds that it's not God that causes evil, but the fact of our finite natures that allows us to become evil. Aquinas shows us that God's absolute sovereignty is not incompatible with our freedom, but instead is the very cause of it. The Thomistic tradition teaches that there is a hierarchy of being, that parts make up wholes, and that substances are not reducible to their parts, even if they are composed of them. The novel causal powers are not determined by the parts, but instead determined by God, who made this nature to be brought about. As such, the will will be free in a real way with respect to creation, but always causally and formally dependent on God. We are morally culpable for our free will choices because it is us who makes the choice, because we could have done otherwise, and because God always provides a way out when we lean on his infinity with our frailty. Hell becomes the object of our desire when we have habitually misordered goods, snapped from the good towards our own nothingness, and flipped the categories of good and evil such that the intention and 
action can never be brought into right alignment. Our wills become more free as we approach the cause of our freedom himself. Grace elevates and perfects our nature, including our nature as free agents. Saying yes to God is the ultimate act of freedom, just like Mary did. And it's no coincidence that she's called full of grace. We know that the will is meant to cooperate in community, thereby the goodness that God gave us becomes a self-gift. The boy in the feeding of the 5,000 gives his lunch and thereby becomes a type of Christ, who in John's next chapter is described as giving his own self to be multiplied in the sacred community of God and man. And likewise, Mary gives what she was given, this grace, and becomes a means of God's grace to God's church. All right, so there you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed this episode and it answered something. We ran a little bit longer than than normal. Uh, next episode is going to be about aliens. And um, we had a, a, a listener that sent in some truly phenomenal mailbag questions. So I'm very excited to get back to that. I know we've been neglecting it. A lot of those mailbag type questions I've just answered by email or have... Uh, made a whole episode on. But if you want that back, just email me at thegordianknot101 at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, love to include that back in the episode. And if you have any topic ideas, send that request to me. Whew. All right. Well, thanks for listening and I'll talk to you next time.